Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, October 31st, 2008. I'm Alana Rangi. Sounds like a pretty scary word, but today we're talking about sex, not scariness. This week we join a philosopher, a psychiatrist, and an ex-dominatrix for a brief look into the world of sexual fantasies, perversions, and fetishes. And we hear a philosophical discussion about whether science has a place in the dungeon. I want to know whether you've got your tickets for the hottest science and art series in town. I'm talking about SNC's Science of the Five Senses series, of course. Five hot events with some of the world's leading sensory scientists and artists at the New York Academy of Sciences, which, might I add, has quite the view. Get Touchy Feely on November 3rd when the series kicks off with the Science of Touch. Buy your tickets to one event or get a package deal online at www.nyas.org/5senses. It's a sunny Saturday afternoon on the Upper East Side, and I'm at the Philly TD Center for a discussion about sex. I'm Dick Krieger. I'm a psychiatrist. I work at New York State Psychiatric Institute, and I'm uh, medical director of the Sexual Behavior Clinic, and I also am on the Sexual Disorders Work Group for the DSM. The opinions that I uh, express are my own and not uh, those of the DSM. Paraphilia is a pattern of atypical or deviant sexual behavior. It comes from the Greek uh, philia, philos, meaning love, and para, meaning by, so it's something not in the sort of center of love, of love, but by love, and it tends to be something which is atypical. Uh, there have been various definitions, I'm sure since antiquity, but coming up uh, into the present, and now these refer to sexual behaviors which are variant, atypical. Typically, one asks for uh, six months of sexual urges, fantasy, or behavior, which are recurrent or intense and which cause distress or dysfunction or in the case of those behaviors which are criminal, if anybody has ever acted on them, presumably inflicting something on a victim. Paraphilias have a bit of a dual personality, one half that's in the bedroom and one half that's in a clinical textbook. At what point, for instance, is a foot fetish considered a paraphilia? Otto Kernberg is director of the Personality Disorders Institute at the New York Presbyterian Hospital. He gives a fairly strong definition to the word paraphilia. It's not psychoanalysts who talk about paraphilia perversion. It's psychiatrists. In other words, it is in the classification, the DSM system, Diagnostic and Statistic Manual 3 and 4, where paraphilia was introduced to replace the term of perversion. Because perversion sounds something bad, ugly, disgusting. Psychiatrists want to remain pure above all of this, and therefore the term paraphilia was invented. I'm saying this because it's really an expression of um, conventional cultural biases on what's supposed to be a scientific classification. In any case, clinically, we talk about perversions clinically, um, when any particular activity involving sexual interaction, uh, particularly of uh, sadistic, masochistic, voyeuristic, exhibitionistic, fetishistic quality, becomes so 
rigid and repetitive and sexual excitement and orgasm link so narrowly to that particular activity that it shows clearly that the loss of the broad spectrum sexual behavior. That in turn may occur under very different circumstances with very different qualities. In any case, this is what's meant by perversion and by paraphilias. I'm Arnold Davidson. I teach philosophy and the history of science at the University of Chicago and at the University of Pisa in Italy. And I'm interested in the history of sexuality, the history of psychiatry more generally. Arnold is a philosopher, and he's not so sure that science and sex are compatible. It's hard to talk about sexuality, obviously, without talking about questions about ideology, morality, tolerance, and so on. But I take it one of the perhaps hidden advantages of the word paraphilia is it's a technical term which at least raises the question about whether there's a way of having a discourse about sexuality that's not entirely moral or ideological or political. Indeed, I mean, perversion is a technical term in the history of medicine. It's first used to describe sexuality. It has nothing to do with morality. Perversion is one kind of deviation of function. You can augment function, you can extinguish function, you can diminish function, or function can be deviated into an inappropriate object, and that's what perversions are. And the idea that every psychiatrist in the 19th century is very clear about this. Their moral problems, they're called perversity. They're psychosexual problems, they are called perversion. And the problem is to try to carve out a scientific discourse about sexuality. And it has a very precise historical moment. It arises in the 19th century, the second half of the 19th century. At almost the same time, the technical concepts of homosexuality, fetishism, sadism, and masochism are all invented as words, just like paraphilia. Homosexuality, first called contrary sexual feeling, about 1870. Fetishism with Benet in the 1880s. And sadism and masochism are invented as terms by Richard von Krafft-Ebbing and Psychopathia Sexualis. And it's amazing, if you look at the first edition of that book, there's one masochist in the case histories, namely the characters in Leopold von Sacher-Masach's novel, and two sadists, the Marquis de Sade, and now I always forget whether it's Blackbeard or Bluebeard, whichever is the worst of the pirates. And then by the 12th edition of that book, there are hundreds of sadists, hundreds of masochists, hundreds, really, they're, they're everywhere. And it's an interesting phenomena to try to figure out what's going on. Actually, very few people know that Leopold von Sacher-Masoch, who was a very distinguished author, wrote to Richard von Krafft-Ebbing and said, why did you name a disease after me? I'm, I'm just a writer. And Krafft-Ebbing, who was extremely intelligent, wrote back to him and said, you're so much more acute than most medical doctors that you've described accurately a syndrome which we, after you, have only come to recognize. And I want to raise the question of what it means to have a scientific theory of sexuality. The moral discourse on sexuality, political discourse on sexuality, we have a long history of, but we have a relatively short history of scientific theories of sexuality. I'm not talking about 
the biology of reproduction, but I mean sexuality as, say, a biological impulse expressed psychologically, in which the psychological aspect of it is the object of the scientific theory. And since we have such a short history of that, it always occurs to me as an important question to know what are the conditions under which and why do we need a scientific theory of sexuality? Kruger has an idea. There's a quote that I came across from Charles Darwin, which was written in 1862, who says, We do not even in the least know the final cause of sexuality. The whole subject is hidden in darkness. That was in 1862. Now, there's a book called Sexual Deviance, which is edited by Richard Laws and William O'Donohue, which is now its uh, second edition, which contains a lot of information about the various paraphilias. It's probably the most comprehensive of the books. Uh, many people would disagree with the even basic title of deviance, but one chapter in there discussing sexual sadism says, in 1986, these two authors, Bush and Kavanaugh, stated that most of the work in this area consisted of unfounded statements, unsupported by data, unevaluated case reports, lacking rigorous evaluation of other contributory factors, and scientific case reports of individuals or small groups. Regrettably, the same can be said today over 20 years later. You get to nomenclatures such as polymorphous perverse sexuality. These are very broad terms. And, and I think that we're sort of in the discourse on sexuality kind of stuck uh, or have been stuck in concepts and, and, and language which is not led to much in the line of scientific discovery. Some of this sort of lack of scientific discovery, I would say, is because of the failure or abhorrence of society to really support any kind of research. Sort of as a professional who's tried to get grants and various other things, there really is a dearth of support uh, for studies on sexuality, studies on deviant sexuality, and so on. The whole question of why develop a science of sexuality is a reasonable one and a joinable one, so to speak. And I think that what are you going to do with this sort of science? Society is investing a huge amount of money right now in terms of uh, sort of uh, sexual crime, sexual criminals. And I think that it would be a benefit to be able to understand more what some of the etiology is, what the nature of these things are, how to treat, prevent, uh, contain certain sexual uh, criminal acts or criminality. I think that a science of sexuality could be useful. It's a fascinating historical fact that sexuality becomes an object of scientific theory at a very particular moment. And I don't know of any attempt to conceptualize the notion of perversion, paraphilia, whatever you want to call it, which is thoroughly coherent. I'm not sure that the division between the normal and the pathological in any of the psychological sciences, I'm not talking just about sexuality, but indeed in, in any of the human sciences more generally conceived is, is entirely coherent. Some of the issue is that people are concerned about the, the science of sexuality being some kind of hidden way or overt way for society and the majority to control the minority or to control various aspects of unconventional sexual behavior or what's perceived as deviant sexual behavior. So I think there's a concern on that level, and I also think that there perhaps is more kind of an embarrassment or an aversion on society's part to studying sexuality. It's clear to me that there are people who get into trouble 
because of their sexual behavior. And I think that, I mean, these are, these are illegal behaviors. For instance, we take the notion of pedophilia or the diagnosis of pedophilia. These are individuals who abuse children. This is illegal, some would say immoral. There are people that repeatedly are unable to control themselves from abusing children. And I think that it would make sense from society's point of view to view this more as a medical disorder or as a psychological disorder than to criminalize it all the time. Because I would draw the analogy between, let's say, substance use and abuse and some of the paraphilias. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, Uh, let's say heroin addiction, alcoholism, and so on, were criminalized. And what happened is you got thrown into jail instead of being referred to appropriate treatment facilities. And the sort of adoption of these behaviors, the whole construct of alcoholism or substance abuse as a disease, I think has resulted in society viewing this differently and being more successful at helping individuals control themselves. So you've had the whole evolution of a scientific literature involving substance use, abuse, and so on. I would say by analogy that some of these sexual behaviors are quite similar, such as pedophilia. I mean, pedophiles are scorned, institutionalized. Everybody wants to throw away the key. But from a point of view, for instance, of cost, it becomes very expensive for society to do that. And I think that there are alternative ways of dealing with individuals who are pedophiles. I think that there's not been a lot of investigation in terms of treatments that might be available, but I think that it's a reasonable thing to consider pedophilia a disease and to try and develop rational treatments and to study this in a reasonable and scientific way. That would be one instance of where I believe that there is a medical syndrome which can be identified and which can be the focus of scientific investigation and development of treatments. How much you could extend this across the spectrum into other paraphilias, I don't know. It might be time to go to the source. I'm Susan Wymaker, and I was a dominatrix and wrote a book about my experiences in the dungeon. For five years, Susan was one of London's top dominatrixes. Her book, Concertina, chronicles her experience and that of her clients. Despite seeing an undeniable diversity of paraphilias, Susan hesitates to call any of her clients abnormal or draw a line between their particular sexual fantasies or preferences and what others would call normal sexual behavior, like missionary position between a married couple. Because I was a dominatrix, everyone that comes has a certain, you know, fantasy or perversion or something they want to explore. It's not my role, it was never my role to say, well, where did that come from? Why are you this way? They don't even want to discuss it. The point is, once you get into that room and into that space, it's about exploring that. It's not about judgment, it's about acceptance. And so the two of you have a trust and an intimacy because they're feeling accepted. And it's two people just trying to to, instead of judge it or pathologize it, just to actually explore whatever that fantasy is and see. And then again, I suppose in in this definition, it seems to say that sort of perversion is really when it becomes, whatever it is, becomes extremely repetitive and rigid and imbalanced. And so that 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 becomes the only thing. So do the people who are there, who are your clients, do do they worry about whether they're normal or not? Yeah. 
I suppose they do, but how, however, in that safe space, they don't. It's not really a question of normal and not normal. It's a question of exploration. Well, when I first started domination or being a dominatrix, I read all the as many books as I could, trying to kind of arm myself in that way to really understand what I'm walking into. And then the minute I'm in that situation, you know, the, it's not about thinking. It's not about analyzing as it's happening because that's then going to sort of limit the kind of spontaneity of it or the sort of, um, yeah, the dialogue between it. So it's, it's sort of something before analysis or beyond or aside from, you know, it's really play and see where that goes and see what comes with it. There's no denying, however, that, as Kruger says, science can help us better understand the psychology behind sexual desire and paraphilias. Kruger talks about what we know today. Generally speaking, the study of sexuality has been underfunded by national institutes, and the study of sort of deviant sexuality has been even less funded. There's virtually no funding for that. Uh, nevertheless, there's a growing interest in this area, for instance, Germans and the Canadians have published some recent large-scale uh, brain imaging studies of uh, individuals with pedophilia. And I'm sure that this will evolve. But I think that the quote that I started out with originally from Darwin in the 1800s, that the uh, whole subject is, is hidden in darkness, is still pretty apt. That uh, what causes somebody to have some sexual preference, sexual orientation, to make the choices that they do is really not well understood. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Do you love Science in the City podcasts? Then you should support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit scienceinthecity.org and click Join Now. Or purchase tickets to four of the five Science of the Senses events and get a free Science in the City membership. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and you can get our newest story downloaded every week for free to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. If you have any questions or comments about our show, we would love your feedback. You can send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. Want to know more about science in New York City? Check out our website, scienceinthecity.org. See you next week.